This little book says, beware and warning. This book is different than other books. You and you alone are in charge of what happens in this story. There are dangers, choices, adventures, and consequences. The wrong decision could end in disaster, even death. But don't despair. At any time, you can go back and make another choice. Alter the path of your story and change the result. How many of you are familiar with these? They were a a bit of a classic in the 80s called Choose Your Own Adventure. Any of you enjoy these books? I had one of these books as a child, and I loved it. It's the kind of book where uh, it tells you, if you would like to follow after the Yeti, turn to page 16. If you would rather leave the Yeti to calm down and go hunting tigers instead, go to page 19. And these were so much fun. You could uh, find all sorts of different things that would happen to you. But I did find that the normal pattern for me was make a choice, read, make a choice, make a choice, die. And there'd still be a good half of the book left to go. But I'd just keep my finger a few pages back where that last choice was, and I'd go back and change it. And then I'd make another choice, another choice, and then end up in jail. So now I have to go back three choices in order to change and go somewhere else. And this would happen until the adventure that I got was the one I really wanted. The longest story, the happy ending, the one where I do the cool things and I'm satisfied with what happens. That's the adventure that you get to choose. But what about the adventure you would never choose? On October 1st this past year, 2019... Uh, Some friends of ours were having a very ordinary day. School and work were going well, and soccer season was in full swing. But on that Tuesday, their littlest one of three kids, he was just a little more tired than normal. And, And that was odd because he was probably the most energetic and rambunctious of the three. So his mom decided to go ahead and take him to the doctor just to see if something might be wrong. He said, you know what, why don't we do a blood test just in case it might be mono? Okay. So they take care of that. They go home, have dinner, get him ready for bed, put him to bed. And as the parents are enjoying kind of that post-kids-down-in-bed evening, at 10 p.m., the phone rings. And the voice on the other line says this, you need to get your son Jack to chalk immediately because he might have leukemia. And so they had to wake him up And they had to rush him there. And in that moment, their world was turned upside down. And the next day, that diagnosis was confirmed and chemo began. And for nearly three weeks of off and on chemo treatment and recovery and then treatment and transfusion before they finally got to head home from the hospital. And they were happy to be home, but now they had this very heavy new reality that wasn't true just three weeks before of a two to three year treatment plan. Can you imagine? You know, I look out there at you and I wonder, probably a lot of you can. Maybe you recognize that there's part of your adventure that you would never have chosen either. There's disappointment in those pages, some with yourself, choices you've made, some with 
other people. Things that if we had the choice, if we could flip back the pages to where we had left our thumb in it, we would certainly go a different direction. But what I want to talk to you about this morning is a different kind of disappointment. It's a disappointment that maybe you don't normally feel like you can bring up in a place like this. It's the kind of disappointment that actually keeps you from sometimes wanting to go to church on a Sunday or wanting to pray or wanting to sing the songs that we just sang because you are disappointed with Jesus and you feel like Jesus has let you down. Maybe it was some sort of diagnosis of your own or maybe a debilitating anxiety and you thought Jesus would heal you. Maybe it's a failing marriage and you've been praying for Jesus to fix it, to step into the situation. Or maybe it's difficulties with finding a job or, or keeping one. Or, or maybe it's centered on your kids because maybe they've walked away from Jesus or maybe they've walked away from you. Or maybe it's the fact that you were never able to have them and everyone else around you could. For each of us, we can see that there's these points where we say the script is not going the way that we want it. It's not the adventure you signed up for. And Jesus seems like he either doesn't know or he doesn't have the power or he's simply not in charge like you thought he was. And so this morning, if you are coming here disappointed with Jesus, if you've lost confidence, lost a bit of faith in his ability to come through for you, then I want you to know that you're not alone. And you're also not the first. So as we continue in this series, it all comes down to this. We are actually reaching the culmination of what's been a two and a half year journey through the book of Matthew. And in this, we've been following the journey of a king who came to save a people trapped in darkness and in death. And as we march to the climax of this true story, with each step, we are reminded that there is a shadow of death hovering over our hero. And as it nears those who are around him, those who love this Jesus are not going to understand. They don't somehow see it coming. And instead, I think that they are filled with questions that are very similar to yours and to mine. Questions like, how could this happen? And why is it that Jesus seems so weak? Or how can we trust a savior who couldn't save himself? And how can we believe in a Jesus who is so disappointing? And the key verse right in the center of this section that we're in today is this. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Because they were disappointed. And this morning what we're going to do is take a look at something I'm calling the outside view. And after we look at that, I want us to then look at the real story, the real story first of Jesus and what was going on, and then the real story of us and what God is doing. And then I want to end this morning by talking about your pain in a way that I hope brings this all together. But my goal this morning is not to bum you out, but it's actually to help us to latch on to this truth that comes out of the text, that when everything appears out of control, Jesus is still in command. So we'll begin with this outside view. I want you to imagine that you are the disciple Peter. It's been a long night, and you're tired, and you're groggy, and you know that something is up with Jesus because he's not been acting his usual self. 
you're just not really sure what it is. And Jesus says something about the betrayer, and then you hear the footsteps, and suddenly a mob appears. And they've got swords, and they've got clubs and torches, and there's the temple guard. And Judas, who you think, oh, good, Judas, he greets Jesus, and then they grab him. And you can't believe it. Wait a minute, Jesus handpicked this guy to be part of our crew, and you're wondering, did Jesus not see it coming? Wouldn't a good king, wouldn't a true Messiah know? And so from that outside view, Jesus appears ignorant. You think, well, he must not have known, because if he would have known, then he would have done something about it. And he didn't. But then you think, well, but I can do something. Because the last thing that you're going to let happen is your master just get taken away without a fight. It's a suicide plan, but something has to be done. You can't let this crowd of thugs and soldiers just take your helpless teacher away so you draw your sword. Because in your mind, it's up to you to deliver him or die trying. Because Jesus appears powerless. He must not be able to defend himself because if he could have, he would have done something. Now your efforts, not so good. You're a fisherman, not a swordsman. All you get for your efforts is an earful. I know, it's bad. And so you run away. And all the other disciples flee too because you're all disappointed and you're all scared and the dream that you had dreamed is lost. But after a little bit of time, you decide to circle back. You want to know what will happen next, not because you really expect anything more from Jesus, but you've put your life into this, so you want to see how it ends. To you, it's clear. Caiaphas, this high priest and his cronies, they're in control. They're seated in authority, and Jesus stands before them bound. He's under their judgment and under their rule. And by outward appearances, what you see is a guilty verdict. You see them spit in his face and slap him and and hit him and mock him. And in your eyes, they can do with Jesus whatever they want. Because Jesus appears inferior. I mean, if he had the authority to do something, he would have done it. But he can't. Or so it all seems. And I think that in the same way, in our own lives, from our view, from the place where you sit or stand or curl into that fetal position, we too can end up seeing Jesus as ignorant of our issues, powerless to do something, or maybe inferior in his authority, because if he knew and he could do and was allowed, then things would be different. But what if? What if as close as we are to our situation, as well as we think we know it, what if we're only viewing it from the outside? What if our perspective is very limited? And what if Jesus wanted us to see something more? So we want to look at the real story. What's the real story with Jesus? Is Jesus really ignorant? Well, let's look at how Matthew portrays it. Verses 47 through 50. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus 
and seized him. Now, it's not just that we as the reader know what Judas is up to. But Matthew shows us that Jesus knows. He said as much at dinner. And when he hears the crowd coming, he rises not to flee, but to meet his betrayer. And when Judas comes with his slick plan to identify which one of the bearded Galileans might be Jesus in the dark of the garden, Jesus doesn't argue. He doesn't plead. He doesn't bargain. Jesus simply says, friend, do what you came to do. Jesus wasn't surprised. He wasn't blindsided. He already knew, and he calmly allows Judas to proceed with his plans because Jesus isn't ignorant. He knows. He knows. Okay, so Jesus knows, but maybe he doesn't have the power to do anything about it. Is he powerless? We continue reading in verse 51. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Jesus didn't need Peter to defend him. If he wanted, he says he could call on the Father to send 12 legions of angels, over 72,000 angels to come, full, powerful, capable warriors. But this wasn't about taking up a sword. As Jesus explains, that's not going to be the Jesus way. So it's not because he can't. Jesus isn't powerless. He can. He is capable He is powerful. He is able to accomplish what needs to be done. He can, but he chooses not to. So maybe it's because he doesn't have the authority to do it. Is Jesus inferior? And we'll continue to see what Matthew says in this final section in verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make what it is that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he 
deserves death. And they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? You see, through false witnesses and a false story that Jesus could have easily knocked down, he stays silent. He doesn't defend himself. He also doesn't give the high priest what he wants. Until finally, this priest calls on Jesus to swear upon the living God and to answer whether or not he is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, these weren't the terms that Jesus would normally use in his public ministry because this idea of Christ or Messiah had certain military connotations. They expected the Messiah to overthrow Rome. Well, Jesus could have taken time to explain the nuance of how he's different than that. But instead, he amplifies the situation. He takes it further, saying this in verse 64, From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. This statement is a prophecy. Most of it stems from Daniel 7, 13 and 14, a a vision God gave Daniel of a man coming on the clouds to God the Father, the Ancient of Days, who then gives this man all authority and glory and rule. But Jesus also works in there, Psalm 110, verse 1, where the Messiah, the son of David, sits at the right hand of God. Now, it's a powerful statement where Jesus is claiming the highest role and the highest relationship that could ever be claimed. And the high priest Caiaphas takes this as a statement of self-condemnation, but we need to see the awesome heavenly reality that it represents. That the one who appeared as a helpless victim of the courts would soon be the highest authority and judge. Because Jesus isn't inferior, he reigns. And so if he knows, and if he can, if he reigns, then we got to ask the question, why? Why go through it all? Why be a disappointment to those who are counting on you to do something? Because our assumption is if you can see something bad coming, then you got to stop it or avoid it, unless you don't have the power. And if you have the power to do something about it, then you should do it unless it's outside of your authority. But if you have the knowledge and the power and the authority to do something, do it. Unless there is another outcome you see that others don't. Jesus could have done something about the betrayal. He could have stopped the arrest. He could have overthrown the trial. But there is something else more important going on. And we see it in verse 56. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. You see, if Jesus uses his power in the way that the disciples wanted him to, that would have wrecked the entire purpose of why Jesus came, for what all the scriptures were pointing towards, that he would die as a sacrifice for the sins of many and that he would restore a people to God. You see, Jesus not only knew of the betrayal, but he knows of our need for rescue. Jesus not only had the power to free himself, but he also had the power to endure for our sake. And Jesus not only had the authority to override their ruling, but as he says elsewhere, he had the authority to lay down his life and he had the authority to take it up again. When everything appears out of control, Jesus is still in command. And you might be saying, okay, well, that's well and fine and such for Jesus, but what about us? What's the real story with us? Well, the very end of Matthew in chapter 28, it shows that this prophecy became true. 
Jesus was following his death and his resurrection. He was given all authority and power in heaven and on earth. And so the same Jesus who had command in the garden and in the courtroom and on the cross also has command over your situations and mine. He knows and he can and he reigns. But that means we have to deal with the very real possibility that just like he didn't act in the way that the disciples would have wanted and yet brought about the greatest good possible, that maybe, just maybe, our picture, the way that we see things is incomplete and Jesus is actually working a good greater than we can imagine and it might even involve and even use our suffering. Romans 8, 28 says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You know, throughout the Bible, it talks about the kinds of good that Jesus is working through suffering. And I try to narrow it down to three categories, but it's not at all by any means exhaustive, but it is in your notes that through suffering, he is deepening our relationship with Christ, that through suffering, he is enabling us to bring comfort and light to others, that through suffering, he is preparing us for the glory of an eternity in God's presence, an eternal weight of glory that we are not yet prepared to hold. But knowing these things are in the Bible doesn't magically make suffering easy. And we live in a culture that is self-help and self-medicated and they use whatever power you have in your life to make it easier sort of culture. And so, and we totally buy into it. Even letting false teaching of health and wealth creep into our churches and tickle our ears. But God is not a cosmic DoorDash ready to deliver from our every whim and desire. He's not a heavenly vending machine just waiting for you to insert a little prayer and a little cash so you can get the earthly blessings you think you need. No, Jesus has a better plan and a better work to do in and through your life, even when it involves suffering and sickness and disappointment and loss. Even when everything appears out of control, Jesus is still in command. But Pastor Derek, what about my pain right now? Because as true as all this is, as important as it is to have a biblical understanding of these issues, for some, I recognize the pain is simply too real and too loud to really hear the rest of this. And so for you, I'd like to finish the story that I started before. You see, after Jack was home for less than a week, he ended up back in the hospital with abdominal pain. And then things just got worse. He got weaker, he lost the feeling in his legs, and the doctors were worried. On that Sunday, my wife and I, we, we took our kids up to Chalk Hospital. He, he was doing so poorly, we couldn't go in and see him, but we got to spend about an hour with his dad, Mike, talking and praying and crying. And I shared with him a scripture that I had been thinking about uh, as we'd been talking about Jack and praying for him often. And the scripture is also in Romans 8, but verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, this verse is a reminder that the cross is not only what brought us life, but it is a promise of all that God is willing to still do on our behalf. It's the idea that Jesus' death wasn't the end of his gifts, but the beginning. And when I shared that, Mike smiled because he'd been thinking about and reading that section of scripture often. Except for I'd been reading it at home with my healthy children, and he'd been doing it in the hospital. So we prayed, and we cried, and then we left. And the next day we got the message, as did thousands of people who were following Jack's story on Facebook. A a fungus was ravaging his body, and something needed to change and fast. And with thousands of people praying, and thousands of people watching, and schools praying, and classes praying, and teams praying, and churches praying, and we put that prayer request before you, and you were praying, and I was praying, and my kids all throughout the day were praying. And on Wednesday, November 6th, even as more were rallying to pray. And it seemed so clear to me that God would grant this miracle and people would get to see his awesome power. We got the word that Jack had died. And I was crushed. And I didn't understand. I was so heartbroken. I just left work, went home told my children and weep. And I was so disappointed. Disappointed in Jesus. I was angry. Angry that he would let this opportunity go by. A a chance for a child to live and a family to stay whole and for a community, an unbelieving community to witness the power of God for my kids to see Jesus move in response to our prayers. Because he knew, and he could, and he was reigning, but he didn't. And I was deeply, deeply disappointed. And Jack's, not even my son. And so what I'd like to do now is to share with you in his own words what Jack's dad, Mike, did have to say at Jack's memorial. Not because Mike or his wife Karen have it all figured out. They're not superheroes in this, but they made a decision early on to welcome others into their grief, to be honest about the pain, but also to be honest about what they were experiencing of the power of God in the midst of it. Go ahead. And so I was wrestling with God and I was angry hurt and I told God I don't care how much good comes out of this I would not have given Jack I would give my own life for Jack in a minute in a heartbeat if that was an option I was there at chalk in the fifth floor but his response to me has been deep care for me and for my family I've experienced the depth of the Father's love for us, that he gave up his son. It's my morning coffee reading. I'm going to share it with you. Uh, Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for all of us, won't he also give us everything else? 
Can anything separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. This is the love that I told Jack about. Uh, many of you know this story, but some of you don't. It was time for just Karen and I to be there. And uh, I put Jack in my arm, and my left arm was over his head, and my right hand was on his chest. And I put my forehead to his forehead, and I cried. And I kissed my son, and I told him, Jack, I believe God can breathe life into you right now, and you can sit up, and we'll take all this stuff off you, and we'll go home. And, uh, but I wrestled with my next statement, and I told him, Jack, I believe God loves you more than your mom and I do. I don't even know how it's possible. I don't get it. But I told him I release you to be with Jesus, and, uh, those that cared for Jack in our medical team knows that he didn't open his eyes for the last two and a half days or so. And in that moment, he opened his eyes and he looked at me. And we just had a, a moment. And uh, uh, Jack's heart went three or four more times. I felt his chest move. And then Jack died and his heart stopped. And the team turned off his ventilator and, and used a stethoscope to confirm. And Karen and I held each other and we cried and, and we spent time together. And I can't describe it other than I, in that moment, we looked at our son's body and it was not our son. Moments before it was Jack and moments after it was not him. And so I have hope to hold my boy again. disappointed and suffering Christian. Not only does God still love you in the midst of your loss and your pain and your tragedy, but Jesus is still in command. And we don't always know what he is doing, and I'm not going to stand up here pretending to know or expect you to know what is the good that comes about. But can I ask you this? Will you hang on to the hope with me that Jesus is still at work? Will you grasp hold of the hope that Jesus provides, the hope that Matthew and his gospel let shine through? Jesus' story doesn't end in death. And Jack's story doesn't either. And neither will it for you. Not in brokenness, not in suffering, not in loss, not in sadness, not in death, but in eternal joy and life in his name, even when you go through the adventure that you would never choose. Because when everything appears out of control, Jesus is still in command. Will you bow your heads with me? If you're not a follower of Christ this morning and today you realize 
that your suffering is without purpose and your pain without any higher goal and you want to be in the hands of the Savior, if you are ready to have this Jesus in your life to lead and to guide you, to give you purpose and a hope, then please join me in this prayer. Father in heaven, I am not what I should be. I have wronged you in so many ways, and I am sorry for my sins. But today, God, I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that Jesus lived for me and died for me and rose again. And I want to entrust my life, my future, my salvation into his hands. He is my Savior, and he is my King. Help me, God, to live for him, to follow him, and to keep my faith in him always. In Jesus' name, amen.